welcome to Desert Illusions. I know I said that we weren't going to do regular programming anytime soon, but uh, I guess I lied, and we are actually going to do a bunch of episodes, which is uh, fun for everybody involved. Especially for me, because we get to go to a place that I really love that was uh, near and dear to the start of the show. Very important. Westeros. We're going to uh, go back for our third episode uh, of the year in Westeros, and... Uh, before I talk about the other two, I wanted to introduce our guests. We have a returning guest. It's always great to have uh, not only people who have been on the show before back, but also somebody who I've uh, met in person and been on panels with and is really uh, an expert in this uh, community and on this subject. We have Jim McGeehan here. Jim, do you want to tell us a little about yourself? Uh, hi, I'm Jim, commonly called something like a lawyer. Um, I always take it umbrage with the term expert because I'm all self, I'm a autodidact historian and military historian and stuff like that. So I prefer to think of myself as um, uh, not an expert, but an enthusiast. Uh, but, uh, you know, that that's that's all. Thing. Uh, I mean, uh, I've been uh, I've been doing research in military history since, uh, oh, let's see, probably over 20 years now. Um, but I mean that you know that that even goes back to when I was in school and stuff like that. But yeah, no, I I, I like this. Uh, I like talking about the the more mundane aspects of Westeros, the military, uh, the politics. Not you know, the entire fantasy series is not just uh, you know dragons and prophecy. There's actually a lot of real mundane, nitty gritty stuff in there too, and that's what uh that's what I like to focus on. I'm really glad you said mundane because this is a subject that if you're only a show viewer, you may not find all that interesting. This is definitely one that we're doing for the book fans. Uh, I, I wouldn't say that you wouldn't be able to follow along, but we're going to be talking about uh, Storm's End, the Stormland. Storm's End plays a very pivotal role in uh, the recent wars of Westeros, Robert's Rebellion, uh, War of the Five Kings, uh, whatever Aegon and John Con are up to. Uh, so we're gonna we're gonna really talk about uh, the significance of the region because it is a peculiar region in Westeros. But before we do that, I just wanted to uh, give a note to our other two episodes uh, we did. Uh, we had Michael McElhatton on the show who played Roos Bolton in something that uh, I really didn't believe was actually going to happen until it did happen, which was really exciting. He was such a nice guy. And uh, he was uh, here to promote a new, new film, but we got to do a bunch of Bruce Bolton uh, questions, a lot of fun. Uh, and we also did a uh, queer reading, transgender take on uh, really going through the all of uh, Lord Vary's scenes and exploring uh, the eunuch from uh, a transgender perspective, which is uh, me, obviously. So um, those two are fun. You can check those out. Uh, and uh, we're going to talk about the Stormlands. Stormlands, it's... I guess really the inspiration for this episode came when I kept thinking about how Robert's Rebellion, how Storm's End, it, it doesn't feel like it's that significant a place in the story, and yet it has such rich history with the Targaryens, and it played a role in Robert's Rebellion and the War of the Five Kings, where you know if people didn't think of it as such a big deal, uh, they would actually be in a lot better positioning, I think. Well, I mean, first off, what a name, Storm's End. That's just an excellent name for a castle. And it, it it's kind of, it's just interesting because, I mean, overall, it kind of looks, I mean, if you actually look at the, the actual depictions of it, it is kind of bland. It's a drum tower. Um, but, and, and here's the kind of the weird thing where you know that even though I talk about the mundane, the actual supernatural really does matter, um, is that uh, it has uh, a curtain wall that's thickest on the seaward side. And from an engineering perspective, you don't want that. You want the, the wall to be thickest in the side that's actually going to be facing siege engines and other, other bad things that are actually, you know, from interlopers and stuff. But the story of Storm's End, it makes sense why the actual thickest part of the wall is on the seaward side where you're not even going to have approaching armies. And it's, I mean, it's honestly a little bit like the, uh, the Monty Python sketch in Monty Python and the Holy Grail, where the guy said, hey, I built the castle in the swamp and it kept falling down, but the one that stayed up is the strongest castle in the islands. And that's actually this castle because it was in that, or, you know, it was built in the war or in the, in the mythic era uh, of Westeros, the, the heroic age by a guy named Duran Godsgrief, who 
according to the legends, he declared war against the sea god and the goddess of the wind because he took a um, he took a uh, god's daughter to wife uh, to wife, and she had to lose her mortality in order to do so. Um, so the the two parents, the two godly parents of Elenai, the the goddess. Uh, declared war against him, and he built six castles, each one stronger than the last, but each one was destroyed by storms. But uh, finally, the last one um, was was built, and some say that it was because of the children of the forest. Some say that it was Bran the Builder, who used some weird architectural magic that we kind of see with the wall and with Winterfell. Um, So again, you know, this is all, but, you know, this is all, myth and time immemorial so we don't exactly know the story of it but such a rich history of what is essentially a monument to stubbornness and pride and just absolute no one is going to stop me that really defines a lot of the baratheon kings that we end up seeing in the course of the novel Yes, that well, that was really what kind of struck out at me and a lot of the a lot of the seats of the great houses kind of take on the the areas sort of fit the personalities of their rulers at the time of the uh start at least the start of the books like winterfell's all dreary and sort of sullen like eddard and you've got all the uh pomp and pristine nature of the of Castle rock it's very fitting for tywin uh dorn is dorn is dorn dorn's a dorn's a weird place and yeah you've got it seems like the absolute dumbest idea in the world to build this castle just right on the edge of a cliff. And then that kind of, that just, that really uh, becomes the defining trait of uh, Robert and uh, Stannis, this sort of overwhelming sense of resiliency that, I, I mean, it's, it's, it's. Good. Well, at its best, it's like at its best, it's fortitude to stand up to the hard things. And at its worst, it's sheer bullheaded stubbornness where you can't even countenance any other path. And I, I, I feel like it kind of provokes a stubborn sense of... Re, of, of, of rea- uh, it it's provokes a stubborn reaction from the people who look at it and they think like, okay, I'm going to, you know, fuck up uh, House Baratheon. I'm going to go take this. And then you realize, hey, this castle at the edge of a, a, a sea is uh, really going to be... It's going to be trouble to take it. It's It's... I mean, I know the Dreadfort was like described as something you could hold with like, I want to say fifty men. It might even be twenty. Uh, it's like Storm's End kind of seems like basically one of the most impregnable, uh, uh, impenetrable uh, castles in the whole series. Which I guess maybe the Eerie being the one or the 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 one all the, all the way. At the yeah, well, it's never fallen. It's never fallen in the history in its history to Storm. And uh, you have, I mean, there's other castles that are equally impregnable. You have Casterly Rock and you have the Eyrie. But it's like the Eyrie, you can't even stay in the so- in the wintertime because you, you, you just can't get food up there. So just in terms of practicality, you can't really use the Eyrie year-round as a redoubt. Whereas Storm's End is right there. It's right on the roads. And, you, you know, if you can't take Storm's End then they can send out sally forces after you and things like that and harass any armies that are in, unless you actually go and try and take it by siege, which the Reach almost did in Robert's Rebellion. Uh, But yeah, other than Casterly Rock and the Eyrie, um, it's really hard to take Storm's End as a a castle, as an institution. I mean, most of these great castles you don't really see fall too often. Uh, You do see some of them, but uh, it's just... I mean, they're the wealthy, uh, you know, the wealthy families that there have money that they can spend in in their, uh, you know, they have, they have money that they can spend to keep, keep make sure their defenses are as good as ever. And Storm's End is even more special because it clearly, and you see it in uh, Davos's Clash of Kings chapters, it clearly has some magic going on in the wall. Right. So maybe yeah. that whole, maybe that whole story about. Brand the Builder or the Children of the Forest using architectural magic to kind of reinforce it is true. Uh, we don't know exactly exactly how that works, but George R. R. Martin is very much a show-don't-tell kind of guy when it comes to magic, and he doesn't like to explain anything if he can help it when it comes to 
that sort of elements of it, which, you know, he does to make it more mysterious and thus more scary. And uh, so I don't think we'll ever get an actual, you know, breakdown of exactly what type of architectural magic and what it protects Storm's End from in any actual source materials. We're just going to have to say it's magic and it can do some spooky things and we'll just have to leave it at that. Can you talk about the military significance of Storm's End? Because if you look at it on the map, it's kind of in like basically a little corner of the Stormlands. And what I've always just found very interesting about, you know, we, we throughout the, the five books and, you know, the novellas and all of that, we learn so much about all of these different houses and, you know, not just the major players, but, uh, you know, the, the houses underneath them and, it makes a lot of sense that, you know, a place like Winter or uh, the North and Winterfell, we'd know all the, you know, House Bolton, House Manderley, House Dustin, all of those kinds of people. And, you know, we learn all the, you know, cadet, uh, the the bannermen of uh, the Reach and all of that. And then when we get to the Stormlands, you know, it's almost like it's like this territory where they put a lot of people whose house, who are really, they come from houses and their houses aren't super significant. It's the home of, uh, Griffin's Roost, which was House Connington before it got stripped because he was bad at the Battle of the Bells. You know, uh, Evenfall Hall with uh, House Tarth. I mean, Brienne is obviously a major figure. Nobody else... I mean, her house is not really a big powerhouse. There's also uh, Harvest Hall, which is the seat of House Selmy, which uh, obviously he's an old guy in the Kingsguard, not exactly. And then there's um, House Swan as well as there can't read my own handwriting of where their seat is. And Beric Dondarrion? Beric Dondarrion, yeah, that's yeah, that's another, yeah. He's got the... Um, Blackhaven, Blackhaven, I believe, Blackhaven, yeah. Blackhaven, yes. Uh, um, and then you have these... House, the new House Seaworth. That's true. So you And he's sworn to Stannis, so, like, from the start, too. It's this weird, it's this weird region with all these kind of, like, bannermen, like, I, I look at it, and it's like this. It seems like it's kind of like the the not so popular table. If this was, if Westeros was a big cafeteria. Yeah. Well, I mean, first off, we can we can kind of see from a military perspective. Uh, we you have the uh, the marches you in, in the southwest, and those are you have the foothills of the red of the red mountains. So you probably have mountain fortresses and stuff like that. Over on the southeast side, you have the rainwood. And then you have the Kingswood up in the north. But Storm's End is on the King's Road, so you can dispatch troops to where you need to go. And it's just it's a good command center. It's a good capital city in terms of if you need to. But you have to remember, the Stormlands are sparsely populated compared to the Reach. Right. And you can kind of see why um, you know, the Reach seems to have more grassland, more plains, more farmland. So it can just support a higher population. So I actually get the sense of when I think of storm or the stormlands i really think of they're a people that know that they're outnumbered by any reach incursions so they end up having a strong warrior culture and you can kind of see that balon swan is definitely flexible because he's good with a bow he's good with a morning star and he's good with a sword you have barristan selmy obviously he's you know westeros's own like miyamoto musashi he's just he can just cut through anything you know actual war god we have over here you have robert baratheon you have all of these folks that are actually really good warriors but i think that because of the manpower shortage they're also very flexible warriors you won't see yeah. like for example the disdain for archers that you see in the reach that you you would see in the stormlands they probably actually be very highly valued because they can kill reachman knights when they're trying when they're coming in uh, when uh, the old Gardner kings were thinking about trying to peel off territories from from the Stormlands. And so you can really see how I think that the Stormlands do have... Now, I'm not saying, you know, they have warrior cults and warrior lodges or anything like that. I think that would be a little bit... I think that would be distinct enough that that would be talked about. But I just think there's a strong warrior culture. I mean, plus we have like a Roland Storm, the guy who worships oh, yeah. only the warrior... Uh, so, you know, you can actually even see this kind of minor, you know, I, I wouldn't be surprised if there's religious uh, elements uh, and the warrior is highly venerated within the Stormlands along with uh, the smith because there's probably a lot of uh, timber industry in the Stormlands. And I mean, let's be honest, uh, the uh, the cities of the Triarchy are right across the Narrow Sea and Lys and Tyros are on islands, which means they're always going to need wood for ships. 
So I think that uh, that's, you know, kind of the life in the Stormlands is that it's a bit rugged, but, you know, you have your your lumberjacks and you have your warriors and you have all that sort of stuff. And it just creates a kind of distinct culture all its own. I also think that they probably specialize in hardwoods. So probably, uh, you know, wood, staining, carving, as well as, and this is maybe just going a little too far into the weeds for, I think that they, <laughs> if, if I were to say anything, I would say they would also have a really strong smoked food culture because they have a lot of wood resources. So they probably like in the modern age, these would be the guys with the Traeger grills and they have their pellet mixes to say that to, to maximize the flavor. This, I just think, uh, you know, they, they have smoked meats, smoked cheeses and stuff like that. So probably when Robert was king, you saw that in uh, King's Landing, probably a lot more places would bring in smoked foods, you know, smoked pork, smoked deer and all that sort of other stuff to, to kind of, you know, um, essentially align with the culture of the king. But again, that's just my headcanon here. You don't need to take that's not gospel. I mean, I'm not I'm not going from nothing here. You know, I, I'm, you know, I've, I have, you know, things that I'm trying to draw conclusions from, but this is, let's be honest, it's basically fan fiction <laughs> to say that they, they love, they love smoked. Uh... Well, do you think that Davos would have, or Stannis, when Davos arrived with the onions, they used the smoker to, you know, make what was left of the rat and some onion, maybe make, make some kebabs? Because, I mean, one of the big questions of the whole series that I know has got to be on everybody's mind is, you know, yeah, Davos is the Onion Knight, breaks through the Red Wine fleet and uh, to give resources to Stannis during the Siege of Storm's End. But he's got a boat full of onions, and yeah, they're all starved, but I mean, what kind of starving person wants to, like, their their food is just nothing but onions, so maybe, maybe, the, meat smoke, maybe the smoker came in handy for that. It's possible, but, uh, I mean, let, let's be honest with the, uh, you know, it's like... At that point, if you're if you're eating rats and boot leather, an onion is going to taste like paradise. That's a good point. And I, I guess, so before we segue into uh, Robert's, I mean, well, as we seg in, uh, segue into Robert's Rebellion, before the Siege of Storm's End, because the Stormlands, I mean, before, before the Siege of Storm's End can be relevant, Robert needed to get back to the Stormlands so that he could call his banners and then as pretty much always happens when you're trying to usurp a king, uh, some of your banners are probably going to stay loyal. So he fought uh, famous, a very famous battle, uh, three battles in one day at uh, surrounding Summer Hall. And then right basically afterward, he got, kind of got pushed back uh, by uh, uh, Randall Charlie in the Battle of Ashford, which is not in the Stormlands, but it's in the Reach. Yeah, but it's right on the, ba- it's right on the border. Right. Well, that's kind of also, I mean, just, just the historical nature of the Stormlands. Uh, before Dorne, you know, when Aegon the Conqueror uh, and uh, his his half-brother, Ori's Baratheon, which was the first Baratheon uh, in Stormlands, uh, when, they took, when they took over, they didn't bring the uh, Dorne into the fold. So the Stormlands would have been, you know, they, they're, they're north of, they're, they're what's in between, uh, Storm's End is the, or Stormlands are the buffer between Dorne and King's Landing. So probably in those days, the border probably would have been uh, a bigger concern for the crown. Well, than it you probably saw low-level border raids and things like that all the time. I mean, you even see that in Daron's War of Dornish Conquest. It's like uh, Alindria Martell, or Aliandra Martell, I, I don't know exactly how they say it, uh, made raiding into Westeros part of policy, as in you got her favor as a ruling princess by raiding into Westeros. So hostility, I think, was actually probably the norm. And you saw that in uh, plenty of places, like from Scotland into England, cross-border raids happened all the time. Um, so I really think that uh, probably you saw, I mean, that's why the, you know, the Dondarians and all these guys are marcher lords. I mean, march was a very specific thing. A march was a specifically a feudal contract where you had more defensive obligations, but you usually got tax breaks in order to help you out. Uh, it was they were placed for st- castles of strategic importance on the border with hostile lands. So these marcher lords—that's a very real thing when you're thinking of um, 
of our own history. So you can kind of see, you know, the Dondarians and the Swans. I believe the Swans are also martial lords. They would have probably been the first to defend, uh, to defend, and they'd have probably have to deal with the uh, light Dornish cavalry, you know, riding on their sand steeds to go and steal, um, steal grain at harvest time and stuff like that, and poach everything they could, uh, you know, that wasn't nailed down, and then ride back across the border to Will, and uh, you know, ha- enjoy the spoils of that. Uh, so I mean that that's that's important. So I mean again that martial culture when it's not the stormland or no it's not the stormlands moving in it's the uh, the Dornish coming up from the north. And I mean even early on I mean we only hear of one pre uh, you know we only really hear of one expedition to Essos from Westeros. Usually it's the Essos coming over to Westeros, whether yeah. that's the the first men, then the Andals, and all that other stuff. It's always going from east to west. We hear of one expedition from west to east, and that's Argilac the Arrogant, who goes and fights against Volantis uh, with Aegon the Conqueror at that point. Uh, although I don't know if they actually knew each other or interacted. It doesn't seem like they did, just from their, they don't really mention it. But I mean, it was a long campaign. So, but apparently, Argilac the Arrogant came in looking for uh, plunder and glory and found it in abundance. Uh, kind of, he was trying to reverse the decline of this of uh, the stormlands that had happened under his father and grandfather. So that's kind of interesting. Where it's like, of course, these warrior types are the ones. Like, if anybody's ever going to go from west to east, it's going to be these guys. And sure enough, it was these guys. Yeah, unless you count, unless you count the golden or the Westerosi exiles after the first Blackfire Rebellion, but that wasn't a that wasn't a military expedition. That was a you know a mass migration of exiles. It does all of that really does kind of put into perspective because I mean the only reason that Robert you know you could have you could have put uh, Robert I don't know you probably couldn't have put uh, Huster Tully or uh, maybe maybe Brand Brandon Stark before he died uh, could have maybe been put, well. Robert's Rebellion happened because he got killed, so that wouldn't have worked. Uh, Robert was kind of the most obvious choice for a lot of reasons, but chief among them being that House Baratheon has historically uh, been very closely aligned with House Targaryen. It does have the closest blood relation, but I think one of the things people forget when it really comes to that is that people really believe... I mean, we only really see Robert in the main novel series where he's this basically drunken, rotted, you know hulk of a battleship way past his prime but in robert's rebellion he was young he was strong he was vigorous uh i mean muscle like a maiden's dream is what um is what eddard stark says and you when eddard actually goes to the sisters um and he's you know he's uh going there when he's trying to go back to the north they even talk about robert and they say he fights the way a king should fight and that's really important to these uh, people. I mean, because it's a military aristocracy, but it's also feudalism. And one of the things is, is that feudalism, essentially, you swear your service to your monarch in exchange for protection. And he's actually on the field and he's winning. And everybody loves a king that wins. Um, well, I mean, you know, and even in Ashford, it's kind of an inconclusive victory, but People right. really believe in him, and certainly the the blood relation helps. The fact that uh, you know, Eddard Stark had no royal blood, and he was a worshiper of those foreign northern gods. I mean, I know there's really a lot of peace between the Faith of the Seven and the old gods, but that's mostly because the old gods aren't actually ruling anything outside of the North and and House Blackwood. But um, you know, you don't really see, for example, um. Eddard Stark making a claim to winter or to to the thing, and then John Aaron has some relation, but he's old. He has no heir after uh, Dennis and um, Elbert Aaron are killed, and so it's just Robert makes the most sense. It's just a confluence of factors. But again, they believe in him, and at the I mean at the banks of the you know before the Battle of the Ruby Ford, they all swear their allegiance, and they're swearing it to Robert. Not, to, I mean, they're swearing it to their other folks, but it's Robert they believe in, and it's Robert that's really so symbolic. I mean, you have to remember this is a pre-literate society. Uh, symbols are very important to um, the, this population. It's something that they can grasp and believe in, you know, as opposed to when you know Stannis sends out his knights about the the promulgations of Joffrey's bastardry. 
sure that's salacious gossip, but you know it's it's not as symbolic as Robert fighting, you know, being wrong, fighting and winning. Well, it also speaks to the the power of of the uh, legacy of House Baratheon that Robert uh, would entrust his i think stannis was a teenager at the he would have been very young with being in charge of the the siege of storm's end and despite i mean robert robert and stannis are are, are never ever close uh robert obviously likes john aaron a lot more he likes edward a lot he likes basically anyone a lot more than stannis but uh there's a there's a trust there that when push comes to shove when shit hits the fan uh whether it's that or the 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 Greyjoy rebellion he does have tremendous faith that, yeah, Stannis is an asshole, but if push comes to shove, you want him in your, you want him in your, not not just in your camp, but also in your castle, not letting anyone else in. Well, and it, and it makes a lot of sense. I mean, first off, you have to have someone you can trust implicitly to take to hold your capital city, because again, when we see with the War of the Five Kings, when Winterfell falls, a lot of symbolic power that Rob Stark has is lost because he's lost his his chief holding his capital right. city. Um, and so you need someone you can trust implicitly. And when it comes to that, family really is everything. I mean, this is a military aristocracy. It's dynastic. When you're not the eldest, uh, you are usually a lieutenant for your eldest brother. And Stannis, I mean, at this point, he's 16 or 17. He's, I mean, but... He, this is his essentially. This is Stannis's baptism by fire. You know, baptism you know, holding Storm's End is his big fight, and he pays dearly for it. Which is why Storm's End matters so much to Stannis, and why he always smolders over how Renly got it instead of Stan. Uh, you know, because I mean, again, George R. R. Martin even says, you know, it's a Robert could have kept both castles if he really wanted to, yeah. but he wanted to, he wanted to make sure that Stannis and Renly were both well taken care of. He calls it careless generosity, which is such a good phrase for Robert because it's like he gives, I mean, his mentality is Stannis has a castle. Renly has a castle. Stannis needs to hold Dragonstone because Dragonstone is harder to manage than Storm's End, which, I mean, they're already loyal to me anyway, whereas you probably have a lot of Targaryen holdouts. So I actually need an adult to handle Dragonstone. And it it means a lot. And it's like, and and then Robert's like, Okay, well, you know what? I've taken care of their lives and livelihoods. They're both going to be well taken care of. They're going to be able to well take care of their families. I've done a good job. Meanwhile, Stannis, utter pragmatist that he is, is like, this is an objectively worse holding than Storm's End. And Storm's End is the one where I fought to earn it. This really should be, you know, again, I say he's a pragmatist, but really that's not practical at all. But it matters so much to him. And also it matters that, you know, Renly is not swearing fealty to him the way that uh, Stannis swore fealty to Robert. So, of course, that's also got a stick in his craw. But it's just, it matters so much to Stannis. Well, yeah, and he feels so burned, too, because, I mean, like, Stannis doesn't really, with all of his adherence to rules and protocol and whatnot, he didn't really seem like the most willing participant in Robert's Rebellion. And he talks about that. He said, you know, I did my duty. Ares was my king. I shouldn't have done this. But, I mean, Dragonstone is traditionally, it's kind of like basically supposed to be the seat of the next in line. It's it's kind of like Westeros' version of the Prince of Wales, basically. So it seemed, it seemed odd not only to give that to, I mean, Stannis would have been his uh, heir at the time. But it seemed like odd to give it to him in perpetuity, where if if, if he really cared about his children with Cersei, uh, it would seem like the, the real smart power grab would be to put, uh, you know, to almost make Stannis like the regent for, for Joffrey in terms of... Uh, or, yeah, or Castellan, yeah, yeah, Castellan, Castellan. yeah. Yeah, like yeah. It, it, and it... It it does, and I think again, again, it's Robert's like, oh well, I've taken I've taken care of Stannis and Renly. I've been a good big brother. Let's go and drink. Um, whereas you know, again, Stannis is thinking about kind of it in the in the whole thing. But I think Stannis also is. I mean, and it just it just really sits on him. It's like you know, everything he does, and he gets what's clearly less, what's less than everyone else. And he, he, I mean, let's be honest, he is really envious of the fact that Eddard and Robert are best bros for life. And he really wishes he kind of had that relationship with, uh, with Robert. I mean, he wishes that, you know, essentially if, if Eddard is the brother that 
uh, Robert always wanted. Stannis is the brother that Robert can depend on but doesn't like. Uh, yeah. and, and it's like the problem is, is of course, that's going to really cost it an interpersonal relationship. And then again, Stannis also has this problem with expressing vulnerability. I mean, you had that even with uh, when he had the whole Proud Wings fiasco. It's like, I'm going to nurture this falcon back to health. And it's like, stop being stupid. Go get another hawk. Um, <laughs> and it's it really kind of just kind of burns him. And um, so you can kind of see it's like where his essentially he sees that this whole thing is just a line, a long litany of thing where he puts in a lot of effort for it. He's not really receiving a commensurate reward. And that yeah. just really has to stick in his craw. And it, it, it's why in like a clash of kings, he's honestly not a very good king at this point. At this no, point, he's, he's a, not a very he's, a, he, he's, he's too he's too backwards looking to grudge you know he wants to fulfill these grudges and say now it's my turn and that's exactly the wrong mentality you have as a king and of course you know george r R. martin is setting him up for these great character transformations hence why he has to go through essentially this crucible i mean we see this with with all of these characters they essentially go through the crucible and the ones that uh end up being the bad guys your cersei's your your little fingers they end up getting burned and they say nothing matters and I'm going to be an asshole. And then, but the, the people that actually are end up going to be our protagonists, our heroic characters, your Briennes, your Sansas, all those other types of characters, they go through this, they experience the hardship and the cruelty and the pain, but they don't let it compromise their basic humanity. It's like when Brienne says no chance, no choice. I mean, that's a, that's just a, the perfect, uh, line of, you know, I'm going to be a hero. No chance, no choice. Um, I, I talked about it when I was on uh, History of Westeros podcast. I talked about uh, the Sworn Sword basically being a Western. And I said that if you took that moment of no chance, no choice and just slotted it into a Western film, it would be seamless. It's perfect. Uh, Brienne is a hero. And then, you know, when Sansa goes and experiences all these feudal intrigues and doesn't lose her compassion, she's a hero. And I think that's what you see with these characters is that the um and it, it storms end it's per it's a perfect crucible look at yes. stannis versus renly what does stannis do when he finds out that uh you know joffrey is a bastard and all of this stuff he goes to john aaron they're trying to make their case what does renly do when he finds out he says how am i going to benefit to this he goes to mace tyrell and he looks to make sure that he's the the big winner yes we actually, we also, we have an episode on, called The Peaches of Renly Baratheon, which is a very pro-Renly episode, even though I'm, I, I love Stannis a lot. I, I, I see his, I see a lot of his points, and I also understand why nobody else likes Stannis, so that's kind of the big mess. I, you, you brought up grudges, which brought me to a, uh, question that I wanted to, kind of one of the things that made me think about doing this episode is the idea that laying siege to Storm's End was kind of like, it, it seemed as though for King Aerys, kind of like, yeah, it makes sense. This guy's an usurper. I'm going to take his castle. I'm going to destroy his political clout. And I'm going to make him look like a fool. Was it a mistake to put in so, to put so many eggs in the basket? Because I mean, when he sends uh, Mace Tyrell, and uh, there's the Red Wine fleet, and then there's also I think House Tarly is with them. So those are the big, big, a lot. And the the Reach has a lot of troops, like upwards of seventy plus thousand, way more, certainly way more than a lot of single regions. And that's kind of how they were able, to basically, pick who wins the War of the Five Kings. But Ares sends all them there, and they basically have a big feast and picnic outside of Storm's End for most of the war, and that's 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 why King Ares lost it. I mean, was it was it foolish to send any to to even really try and take the castle in the first place? I don't think so, for a couple of reasons. For one, no one really knew that Davos was going to be able to get in, so that was just an eventuality you couldn't prepare for. Um, for two, at the time. Ares already had another army in the field looking for Robert. Robert was, you know, withdrawing. He was wounded. Um, I mean, not, not personally wounded. His army was wounded. Uh, and so he had every reason to believe that John Connington was going to be able to take out Robert before uh, John Aaron and Eddard Stark could even get there. And then after uh, John Connington loses, 
Rhaegar comes up and he actually does peel away troops from the, the siege at Storm's End because they even say that when, when Ra- uh, Rhaegar comes back, he's got the Dornish spears and he has people from the uh, the Reach troops from the siege at Storm's End. And then he, he goes and grabs the shattered remnants of John Connington's army. So he actually had an army in the field. So it's not like it's a big mistake. And uh, I mean, taking Storm's End is a viable objective. It's this castle that's never fallen. If you were able to do that, you can rob, you know, you can rob Robert of his legitimacy, his standing. You're probably going to see mass defections as other people go to try and maybe save themselves because they think that he's going to be losing. So, I mean, plus, you know, Stannis and Renly are going to be killed. Uh, So it really actually wasn't a mistake. It just, it didn't work out the way that it, that he wanted it to. And I think that that's kind of one thing that's always uh, important when it comes to studying military history is that not everything is, you know, that doesn't work out as a mistake. I mean, certainly there are plenty of mistakes and blunders in military history, but you know, there's going to be a winner and there's going to be a loser. And sometimes it's just, it doesn't work out in your favor. I mean, you know what they say, it's like, if you have a 70% chance of winning, it means you have a 30% chance of losing. So if you do lose, it was just one of those 30% of the t- 30% chances of the time. That's so, a very interesting perspective because I've always kind of been like, it, it almost it it almost seemed like sort of the prestige and the the the, the idea that Storm's End had never fallen makes it uh, this kind of shiny object. And I mean, Ares wasn't the greatest. I mean, Robert's Rebellion also wasn't really that long. There weren't that many battles. Yeah, that's so. kind, that's kind of weird actually about. Uh, Westerosi Wars is that they're all one year long. Um, I know that the reason why that happens, I mean, with the exception, I think, of the Faith Militant Rebellion, which is kind of just fires cropping up all over the place. But I think I think that George just did that for simplicity. I mean, you can kind of actually see that with a lot of the things that he does. Um, it's just, you know, like, uh, for example, all, these, uh, all of these uh, kingdoms are contiguous. You know, you never see any enclave or exclaves of certain lands, you never see, for example, like the English kings who held French holdings in Normandy or anything like that, because that would just be terribly confusing. Right. Because so, and I, I think that that was just made for ease of, for the ease of consumption uh, on the part of the reader. Yeah, that's a good point. Well, yeah, I mean, I mean, that's the one thing we have to remember. But you know, history doesn't have a word count. George R. R. Martin does. So. You know, something. You know, whenever he makes the choice to include something in his novel, he has to cut something out. So some stuff that maybe he doesn't feel is most interesting. Which, let's be honest, as a fantasy work, he focuses on character work. Yes. That's really his big draw: is these interesting characters and the situations they experience and how they handle these intu- uh, you know, these situations. So stuff like uh, background wars and things like that are kind of going to fall to the wayside. I mean, certainly he loves his food descriptions and that's just a personal quirk of his, <laughs> but really it's a character, it's a character uh, piece and you know, that's what he focuses on. And so that's why I think, uh, you know, these weird, what the, all of these wars are one year long type thing happens. Whereas you don't have, you don't see any 30 years or hundred years wars or anything like that. Well, he did. He did three battles in one day for Robert. At- well, that I mean, I think that that battle, the Battle of Summerhall. Um, I wrote a huge essay about this uh, a while back. It was on an, link, an ebook I'll for link Tower to it. Of the Hand. Put it in the. Uh... Oh wait. It's- uh, I, I think the book is actually out of print now, uh, which is a well, shame. <laughs> but uh, it was the. Viewers, here's what. <laughs> yeah, well, it's, it was called. It was called uh, a hymn for spring. It was the Tower of the Hand ebook. I remember uh, that one. Yeah. Yeah, and. Um, Summerhall was, uh, I saw it as kind of the Shenandoah Valley campaign in the American Civil War, where he just basically was able to move, grab good ground and then move his army to intercept armies as they came because he was able to identify Summerhall as the enemy rally point, essentially. Because you have to remember, these are feudal armies, so you have to muster the army and then you have to go and march them. So right. these armies aren't being raised from bases and barracks that are, you know, that you would see in a modern day, but these are being raised from certain fiefs. And they say, well, we have to go and meet up somewhere. And honestly, Summerhall is not a bad choice. It's kind of centrally located in the Stormlands, So different people can march there and you get there roughly speaking at around the same time. It's also close to the reach. So because the reach is friendly to the uh, rebel Stormlords. So, you know, they can go and 
even if they can't request, uh, you know, full army because they're they're mustering their armies as well, they might be able to ask for some light cavalry or anything like that, maybe, um, or just a shipment of food and bows or anything like that, something to help that help out their war effort. I mean, they probably would just say no, but uh, you know, you could always ask. But uh, you know, Robert just he gets there first because uh, there's a there's an old saying by uh, Nathan Beth Forrest: you got to get there the firstest with the mostest. And I think huh. that's what Robert what Robert did is that he got there, he was able to assemble his troops, and then just as they were coming, he just set up his battle lines and beat them one right after the other. Yeah, that, that's a uh, great way of uh, summarizing that sequence of events. Um, so I had a question related to the War of the Five Kings, kind of, uh, sort of along the similar lines, and I can almost kind of expect, I, I guess, we kind of know that with regard to... So Stannis gets some advice before he goes and has his famous parlay with Renly, or the pe- where Renly just tells him to eat a peach, which gets in his head for ever. I, I, I think posthumous Renly, wherever he went, was probably laughing at how much Stannis uh, thought about the peach. But um, there were people who said, Stannis, don't worry about Storm's End. Go and attack. King's Landing is vulnerable. Dragonstone is not far from it. I mean, it's basically, it's quicker to get to King's Landing than it is to Storm... Storm's End, so he has to go out of his way to deal with uh, Renly. And yet, at the same time, we can understand that... I mean, there's also the practical matter of uh, Stannis maybe could have taken the seat... or could have taken uh, King's Landing, but could he have held it? That's a problem. He also, symbolically, it would have been weird if a Brath- if one of the two Brathian claimants to the in the War of the Five Kings, if one of them took it and didn't hold the family seat. So it's kind of hard to say, "Oh my God, you're an idiot," and yet he would have gotten it what he wanted if he if he didn't screw around with his ex girlfriend's Storm's End. Well, I mean, you have to also wonder. You have to remember that Stannis doesn't have very many troops, so it would have to be a, a, a do or die, all or nothing affair. If he takes Storm's End, he could probably poach a lot of the loyalty of the Stormlords. And Renly is a bandwagon army. People are basically joining him because he's got the largest army, but he's really lackadaisical about the whole affair. Plus, if Stannis does attack uh, King's Landing, then, you know, he also has to deal with the fact that Renly has an army at Bitterbridge and can just march up. He's already starving the, the capital city, and it's not like Dragonstone has a lot of food. So by taking Storm's End and forcing Renly to come to him using his cavalry, which he outpaces his supply lines, his men are tired. Um, it's actually a good idea on Stannis's part to actually make Renly come to him. That's actually a line from uh, The Art of War. It says, even if the... Uh, even if the enemy general is protected by high walls and deep ramparts, we can draw him out by attacking that which he must defend. And so that by forcing Renly to come to him to outpace it, he loses his numerical advantage. He still has a, a big one, but he does have a lot more numerical, uh, you know, he loses a lot of the numerical advantage he has. And Stannis is, is aware of this, and he knows that he's basically forced Renly to come, come with no food, so he has going to essentially bait an attack, and so he does that by you know establishing field works and this all this other stuff to essentially just kind of rob Renly of the momentum that he needs. Because again, he's a bandwagon king. If Renly starts failing when he had all of these overwhelming advantages, everyone's going to turn on him. And Stannis understands this, and I mean, you know, all, for all the people that don't like Stannis, the fact of the matter is the people that do like him are willing to cross a burning bridge of ships for him. So. A very polarizing figure, essentially, which you might expect from a guy who later ends up being, you know, the apocalyptic messiah of Melisandre. Yeah, yeah, I think it's a little, little fair to say that he's a divisive figure. I mean, the the whole situation, it, it always, it's always kind of, I don't want to say nagged at me, but I've always just found it really odd that so Stannis, Lu, when, when when he is able to retreat, and I think you make a good point that. Had he uh, not gone to Storm's End and gotten those reinforcements, uh, if, if he'd been in a similar position as he was uh, at the Battle of King's Landing, he wouldn't have been able to get away. So that's a good point. But then he goes back and he spends basically the entire book uh, at Dragonstone until the very end when he goes up to the Wall. And I'm sitting there thinking to myself, you wanted Storm's End for how long? And you don't even give it like a second thought. And I guess maybe it makes... 
Dragonstone would have been too vulnerable if he'd left and gone to Storm's End, but it always struck. It's well, no, Dra- Dragonstone is the is the one place that where he's completely invulnerable because the Royal Navy was destroyed in the Battle of King's Landing in the Battle of Blackwater. So right. he's the only one with a navy. So it actually makes sense for him to go back to well, first off, Dragon to Dragonstone because it is his his capital sea holding, and also no one can get to him. And so now he needs to plan his next move. And the fact of the matter is, I mean, the only one who can really do anything would be Paxter Redwine. And Paxter Redwine, um, you know, he's being really lackadaisical, really, about bringing his navy up. And justifiably so, because Balon's declared independence and he wants to make sure, or, you know, and the, the Lannisters want to make sure that the Iron Fleet, I mean, they're attacking the north, but they could easily go and try to attack the, uh, the Westerlands as well. So it makes a lot of sense for him to go back that way and then for him to go and brood until he eventually goes and does the right thing. So the, uh, the fact that they had basically at, at, at the Blackwater all of like the the swarms of uh, Tyrell soldiers and the Lannisters are there, uh, all of like that overwhelming might doesn't really matter because it, it doesn't matter that, that Stannis goes and hides basically in the closest possible spot to them, but he's it's got the sea and they don't have any ships. So they're, yeah, I mean that, that's the thing. Is like if if uh, if you want the storm's end, they could just send troops. They could get there by ground. Yeah, they, okay. they could just walk down the King's Road. That you see that, that I, I I'm learning stuff as we're talking. I hadn't thought about that. That yeah. that's a good point. Well, because I the other thing you get the sight of Storm's End from the sea, and you're like, there's this massive castle, and you read about how the Tyrells were having a tourney and stuff. It's weird that you have, like, I guess you can simultaneously blockade it from land and sea, but it's just, you know, it's called the Stormlands. Yeah, it's called, it's called Shipbreaker Bay for a reason. Yeah. Well, yeah. I mean, you, you, can, you can blockade it by ships, but Davos showed that, you know, uh, a blockade is more, uh, you know, it, sometimes it's more wishful thinking than anything else. And it's just, I mean, that's the thing. It's really choppy water. Um, really choppy water is hard to sail, but it's also really hard for your enemies to sail. So if you can, if you actually can get a handle on it, you could actually get to Storm's End through Shipbreaker Bay. The problem is, it's called Shipbreaker Bay. You might end up at the bottom of Shipbreaker Bay. That's true, and like, uh, like their poor parents. That's uh... yeah, and, and that's the thing is like you know their their parents clearly were wealthy. They could have afford they could afford a great powerful ship with an experienced captain. It's just really treacherous water, and there's just no two ways about it. It's like the coast of Alaska. Sometimes, even the best sailors can get swamped. They can get hit by underground shoals or anything like you know, or underwater shoals or anything like that. It's just, it's just risky sailing. That's just all, that's all it is to it. And yet, like all of this, so so Storm's End is is this sort of force that that you know. The fact that there needed to be a blockade screwed up uh, Robert's Rebellion for Ares, Stannis. Well, I guess Storm's End is not really his fault that uh, Blackwater turned turned bad. But all of that, like, it, it, it's this this object of uh, fascination for so many of the power centers. And now we, where we have Storm's End now is the Golden Company and uh, John Connington are, are running around taking pretty irrelevant spots in the Stormlands uh, that fall very quickly. Uh, there's uh, Greenstone, which is the seat of House Estermont, which... Yeah. You see well, the storm, yeah, the Stormlands is completely depleted because, uh, you know, status is at the wall. And so... You know, the, the Golden Company comes in with 10,000 fresh, highly trained troops. I mean, that's the thing. I love the Golden Company. It's a shame they show up so late because they're really cool. It's also a shame. So, I mean, I think I, I think you might know this, but I hate John Connington. I, I, could, I consider him completely unsympathetic. He's, oh, I mean, I don't know. And I, I mean, I know how a lot of people can find a lot of what he says. Uh, you know, they can get pathos from it. But for yeah. me... You know, for me, I, I find it hard to have sympathy for a man who says, oh, if only I committed those war crimes against all of those innocent people, then everything would have been okay. And it's like, yeah, no, guy, I really am not sympathetic to your motives at all, but I love the Golden Company. I think the Golden Company is really cool. Um, and it's just like, I mean, I mean, are we talking about Winds of Winter chapters or are we keeping those... No, 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 go ahead. They've been out for So, I mean, they get Storm's End. Uh, we don't know how. We just know that they get there. 
Well, at least um, at Griffin's Roost, the Heldon Halfmaster says that they have Storm's End, and that's where uh, Ariane Martell is going to go and meet. Uh, so that's uh, and Mace Tyrell's army is coming, and there's going to be a battle. Uh, I think if I'm going to make a prediction, I know you said that uh, my fo- your, your your listeners liked some predictions. I think that's where we're going to see the friends in the reach that Varus is talking about, where they're going to get defections is going to be Mace Tyrell's army that's going, and then they're going to join the Golden Company, and then they're going to march up to King's Landing with, I mean, you know, they're going to have a, enough manpower now because, I mean, 10,000 people is a lot, but right. not really compared to the, you know, the armies that Westeros is throwing around, even as depleted as a lot of these armies are, but the whole War of the Five Kings. But they have a solid fighting core in the highly trained Golden Company, and they've got manpower to help support to lay siege and to do all that good stuff. So I think that's what's the thing going to be for Storm's End. But, um, you know, I don't think John Connington's going to be surviving very much longer. I think uh, he's going to succumb to Grayscale, and Ariane Martel is going to be our POV for that, essentially, that segment of plot. I think, yeah. and I, th- I think it's good. I think, I think Ariane's a good choice for two reasons. One is that we know that she's smart. You know, she's smart enough to, to piece things together. So, you know, she's not going to be completely, uh, you know, flabbergasted by all this kind of stuff. And it's just, it's all going to be too confusing. But at the same time, she's not an insider to any of the plot that's going around about, Ar- Ar- you know, Aegon's secret parentage or anything like that. So if George R. R. Martin wants to throw a couple of curveballs, a couple of cliffhangers, Ariane is well suited to be surprised by a couple of things uh, when, you know, George considers it dramatically appropriate to write. It just, like, it feels so weird, almost, like, anticlimactic. I mean, I know, like, the two big, you know, the Battle of Ice and the Battle of Fire, the upcoming to the, you know, the the book version of Battle of the Bastards, which we did basically, uh, well, not a whole episode on, but we talked about that a lot uh, the last time you were here, and then the Battle of Fire and Marine, and then it's like, okay, well, what about Storm's End? And then, you know, this this place where, I mean, Stannis' entire reputation was built on his actions that day, and yet, like from here, it's 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 fallen, and it's fallen. Like John Connington is is in terms of like the military commanders. I mean, he's basically like one of the biggest losers out of all of them. Oh uh, well, I have I have a theory about that. Aegon and the Golden Company and all that is really kind of a strong, like uh, you know, hey, this is what you wanted sort of thing. Where's like, why isn't why hasn't Daenerys gone to Westeros yet? Uh, sort of thing. And it's like, this is actually what would happen like that. Aegon is one of George R. R. Martin's like lancings of the fantasy genre. And so it makes sense that a lot of the stuff that he does is anticlimactic in terms of the successes. Because, you know, he's a fake king. You know, Varys talks about how, you know, he's been hungry. He's been hunted. He's been afraid. And you see with Tyrion, uh, when he's interacting with him, not really. He's not the, he's not the great and wonderful, perfect king that you think that you could do. Cause I mean, Varys, I mean, let's be honest. Varys has one of the greatest amounts of hubris of any character I've ever seen Yes, absolutely. Uh, in this. And it, he thinks that he can like, he can prune people as if they were bonsai trees. And that's what, that's what Aegon is. It's this perfect bonsai tree that he believes he could just crack you. He's essentially cultivated it into the shape of a King, but it's hollow. And I think that's why, I mean, again, a lot of what he does is going to be anticlimactic for that reason, because you can't just take away these experiences that, you know, you can't take away these tempering experiences that Jon Snow has in the wall and Danny has in Marine and Arya has in Bravos. You can't take these things away and just say, let's just go and make them the hero. Cause if you do what you get is Aegon, you get a hollow hero, a fake hero. And so I think that's why the kind of the fall of, uh, Storm's End is kind of anticlimactic, and really, it's just kind of be setting up kind of Aegon being in in charge of King's Landing for when Daenerys ra- arrives and he becomes the Mummer's Dragon. Yeah, I mean, you kind of know um, he left. I mean, he's. I think the Castellan. There's an Esterling still at Storm's End. There's a not es- Estermont, and there's yeah, Lomas Estermont, and I think Roland Storm is still there. Well, he's at Dragonstone. Oh yeah, I mean not dragons. Uh, um, what is it? Um, Storms End got the uh, B team. Oh yeah, yeah, he got the B team. Yeah, uh, which is a shame. But uh, yeah, Lomas Lomas Estermont, and you have like uh, 
But I mean, you have some Stormlanders, and yeah, the, the sad thing is that they're kind of kind of be yada 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 off off. Well, I don't know if it's going to be completely off panel, but probably if uh, if we're not going to see the actual battle, which I don't think we were, uh, because we've got the Battle of Fire, we've got the Battle of Ice. I think George is not going to load it up yeah. with that much, with that much battle. Uh, they're probably going to get yada 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 off screen. Well, in Aegon too, uh, I know that uh, in one of his more m- most recent chapters, uh, John Khan was mad at him because he's giving away Kingsguard seats. He's really, w- it's like he's cosplaying king. And I, it, well, I mean, and the thing is, is like you can, like you, you, you could be sympathetic for Aegon in that moment because he wants to reward one of his loyal friends and followers, right. and it, and it's like you know that there's political considerations to think of. And so you can you can see where John Connington is coming from, but you can also see where Aegon is coming from. And it's that disunity about, you know, not being united in purpose. I mean, we even see John Connington says, you know, I'm going to go and I'm going to shank Varys after we get King's Landing because, you know, of all the indignities he made me suffer. You know, this sort of two-headedness is expected. I mean, you know, not everybody, you know, you don't have hive minds, but... It again, it just it it speaks to a little sort of lack of unity of purpose. I mean, and then depending on if you think you know de- if you believe in the uh, any of the various Aegon Blackfire theories, um, it gets even more kind of weird in purpose because it's like the Golden Company are doing that, but you know a lot of these folks don't want to go and have a Blackfire as their king, and if they knew, they would be horrified because the the Blackfires are five generations of strife, and now you're going to go and invite them back in. I I would be. I mean, I know that this theory isn't like universally accepted, but I I would personally be shocked if Aegon was not a Blackfire. Yeah, I mean, and it's entirely possible that we just never know, and it's just one of those things where it's like, because I mean, let's be honest, that's the riddle of the you know the riddle that Varys poses to Tyrion is that power beli- beli- resides where they believe it to reside. So it's entirely possible that that theory is just something that's left open ended. For, I mean, George loves to leave these open-ended things for the fandom to discuss. Arguably, that's one of the reasons why there is a fandom community is that he leaves a lot of discussion points in his story. Um, but it's also possible that it is revealed at some point. Uh, if it was, it would probably have to be revealed by Illyrio. Um, I don't really think of anybody else who would actually divulge it. I mean, Varys would probably know, but... I don't think he's divulging it. Uh, he's just a little too canny and a little too yeah, careful. Yeah, that's a good point. Uh, but, I mean, Illyrio is perfectly suited for it. Or, you know, brandwherewood.net. I mean, <laughs> he's an oracle. He can see things. I mean, you don't really need to have logic and proximity when you have an oracle in the mix. Fun, uh, f- just f- for the audience, fun uh, Vari's Easter egg. We were extremely close to getting the Vari's actor himself, Conleth Hill, on the show. Oh, and really? Then- his publicist canceled his press day for when 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 indie studios are produ- are are uh, promoting films. Oftentimes, like if if they have a, a bigger name actor who maybe had a small part in it, their contract has like very specific. Okay, this is you get press for like ten minutes basically, and this film he wasn't in it very much, and it was happening at the same time as the we were booking Michael McElhatton and. I, because I was nervous I wasn't going to get either. But I'm like, well, I got two actors I'm working on. I thought the Conleth one was more likely to happen, and then we got Michael, which was nice. But, yeah. we did, you know. Yeah, it, well, I mean, I, what is it? I, I almost got to do a, be on a panel with the weapons master from the show. Um, Syria, uh, you know, Syria I, Pharrell? Oh, no, no, not, not Syria Pharrell. The actual weapons master. As in the guy that wow, actually helped. Wow, that's cool. Yeah, Tommy. Because uh, he ended up having to cancel the last minute because, I mean, he just got a new gig, and in that sort of profession, you don't turn down work because, that, yeah. That so it just it just didn't time. happen. But that would have been fun. But uh, missed opportunities. But uh, you know, it, it is a missed. I think it. Speaking of missed opportunities, I think it's a missed opportunity that we didn't get to see more of the Stormlands because I would have really loved uh, to see. I mean, we we get the North and we get Dorne and we get the Iron Islands, and they're so distinct. And we only yeah. get little we only get little nuggets of essentially the Andal South, you know, from the, the the neck to the Dornish marches. We don't get as much. We get some stuff, just kind of hints at it, and then folks like me and Stephen Atwell from Race for the Iron Throne just kind of run with it. Um, you should see all the world building stuff that you know he and me, Good Queen Alley, all those guys do, all of us do just to kind of make things feel more distinct and fun. Um 
And I really wish we could have gotten some more of that. But what we have is great. I love Storm's End. It's just such a wonderful castle. And again, that name. just I, I honestly think it is probably it and Winterfell, I think, are the best castle names. Honestly. Oh, yeah. Yeah, oh, yeah, Storm's End and Winterfell. They have such a tone of finality to them. Like, it is it is an... an inch, and it's fitting that they're both built by Bran the Builder. There's a tone of finality. Again, you know, that's the theory for Storm's End, but I like it. Um, you know, go and ask how a, a small boy in the... I mean, at that point, it would be the early Bronze... You know, the, or not the early Bronze Age, but it'd be the Bronze Age is going all up and down a continent when he's not even an adult yet. But, I mean... When does Le- what have legends ever had to make sense? I want, <laughs> I-, I want a teenage brand the builder developing architecture magic that he later goes on to perfect at the Wall in Winterfell. I want I, it. You know what? And that's if that's all I have, I still want it. I, I think you really perfectly uh, articulated why I was interested in doing this topic because. It's it's this weird weird place. I, mean, I feel we, I don't think we, we've had a single point of view scene shot or in, in the reach at all. I mean, I mean, if it was, it was the outskirts. Um, not really. Yeah, the the characters haven't gone and, and visited. Uh, we had we had uh, at Bitterbridge. Right. We, we were at Bitterbridge. So we haven't we haven't seen Highgarden. No. Nope. Uh, Sam hasn't gone there yet in the books. He has in the show to Hornhill. Uh. So I mean, like there there are other places that are kind of like elusive, and yet in with with Sansa's conversations with Lady Alana, we get such a vivid and rich uh, idea of 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 what those lands are. And then it's like Storm's End, where we know it's kind of dreary. We know that you know outside of the Brathians, they they don't have like a ton of they don't have a ton of powerhouses, and they they've they have powerful. Powerful warriors come from Stormlands, but great, the, it's it's kind of light on great families, and it's just it's weird, it's this weird spot, and I'm sitting there thinking to myself, like, you know, what the hell is the Stormlands, and how do we get to the answer to that? It's the sa- same way you solve every problem, you make a podcast about it. Yeah, that really is. You just you find, and, and that that's what I love about the fandom is that it's just you know you've got me, you've got all these other folks. I mean, I had one time someone asked me about, you know, what do you think is the uh, Elia, su- uh, Elia Martell suffered from? And I was like, I-, I mean, I guess anemia. And I had a doctor come out and explain all of this thing about how it could be anemia and how, you know, a diet wouldn't necessarily, a guy named, guy's name was Fabio. And he just went and said this whole thing. And that's what I love about a thriving community is, you know, it's like, you know what? I want to know something. Let's go and talk to my friends and find out what's going on so we can get something. And I think that's what we got here. Yeah, I, I really, I wanted, I wanted to do something where we got to uh, look at an area and, and examine its relevance to the story. And just, it, it, it is, it, I mean, it, it's a testament to uh, George R. R. Martin's world building that, there's this whole continent. I mean, there's multiple continents. Sure, there's Asos. I mean, we could probably do an obscure episode about uh, Volantis or... Uh, oh, go it, ask Aziz. Aziz has has full three-hour episodes on that. Yeah, I mean... I mean he, he had a full three-hour episode on the Great Empire of the Dawn. Good God. Wow. Well, that's... Oh, yeah, no. I mean, that's the thing. Again, that's what I love about this community. You're always going to find somebody. Well, you know, I thought that you would be a uh, great person to bring on because you you know your military history uh we won't use the word expert but you uh yeah know your political history military you've uh my engineering been, stuff and all that yeah it's been it's believe been it or not i was actually i went to school for engineering <laughs> i haven't done anything with that degree <laughs> this is the closest i get to that well you know it it was uh <laughs> it was really great to uh talk with you jim and uh uh, do you want to tell us where we can find you? I'll link to all that anyway. So you oh, yeah. I mean, no, it's, it's, you can fi- follow the links and stuff. Something like a lawyer. Um, I'm always happy to help that uh, help out. Uh, ask me questions at the uh, my Tumblr, Wars of, Wars of ASOIF.tumblr.com. Ask me questions. I always love to do that. You can go and find uh, my world building and all that stuff for A Song of Ice and Fire um, and all that. Uh, I also do guest stars on you know History of Westeros. Uh, I've got to, I do a history podcast right now we're doing the german empire the kaiserreich as in 
1870 to 1918 German history. I'm doing that with Stefan Sasse over at Boiled Leather Audio Hour. But uh, yeah, uh, if you want to interact with me, ask me questions, uh, the Tumblr is the best place to do that. Well, we will uh, link to all of that. Uh, and uh, we have a lot of uh, other Game of Thrones, uh, Song of Ice and Fire content. If uh, you're a new listener and uh, want to check those out, Jim, it's uh, it's been a pleasure. It's always a pleasure. I've known Jim for at least six years now, maybe more. Yeah, yeah. Um, it's been uh, it's always good to yeah, chat with you. I think yeah, two thousand. Oh man, I want to say it was like two thousand fourteen. I want to yeah, say some, something like that. Yeah, something like something like that. Something like a lawyer. Yeah, well, that with co- that with COVID and all this other stuff, time just kind of gets yeah. away from us, don't it? It does, and uh, well. Without without further ado, because I think we're circling the runway. Uh, to everybody listening, uh, check out all of Jim's stuff. He's very fascinating. I love I love talking with Jim. Uh, thank you so much, and we will see you next. Time. <laughs>